Well, I'd like to say good morning to each of you this morning, and welcome to our church and our church family. It is great to have you here today. Uh, I'm Pastor Joey, and I do work here. I've just been gone for a few weeks, and I'm happy to be home. Um, We drove to Kansas City, got with the Goodwin family, Megan and her family, and then we got on a plane, and we flew to Portland, Oregon. Um, We survived Portland, praise God. And then um, we drove to a wedding venue where Levi got hitched. And, uh, yep. And uh, so we have a new member of the family. And then also we drove on up into Washington and spent a few days. Um, uh, Will came over from Germany. And then um, Levi and his new bride was able to come down and spend a few days. And then um, Megan and her family were there. So... Uh, it was really neat. It was eye-opening to travel with a little two-year-old. That was kind of interesting. Um, you know, I didn't know there was so many straps and snaps that you have to do now when you buckle them into something. I mean, they come from this direction, this direction, this direction, and God forbid you put one of the snaps in the wrong slot. And uh, so I know when I was a kid, we didn't, we didn't have all the snaps and straps. You know, we had our mom's right arm, right? <laughs> That was it. That's all you needed. And it was amazing how fast those moms are with those right arms and how, how uh, the strength they have to hold us back from the, from the windshields. But uh, that's all we had. But today, that's the, the times have changed. It's interesting, too, little Eliza has learned or is learning a, a lot of new words. And I've shared this with you. And one of the things that one of the words she learned was swim, swim. Eliza, would you like to read a book? Swim. Would you like to eat some tacos? Swim. Uh, would you like to take a walk on the stroller? Swim. And then she learned a second new word. Swim now. <laughs> and so that's kind of what she wanted to communicate. So uh, and another word, Megan said she used to say it this way. Ipeam. Ipeam. It's ice cream. So Ipeam. Hopefully you're getting some summer Ipeam. This summer, but it was great to be with them, and but it's great to be home. Uh, we're going to start a new series today. We welcome you online for those of you who plan on journeying with us in the series called "The Chosen." I know if I'm going to grow in my spiritual life in a way that um, is just dynamic and alive, especially in my own life, but not just my life, but the culture. And the world in which we live, we need Jesus more than ever. And we need the gospel more than ever. And we need creative and fresh presentations of said of the same. And so um, this is probably one of the best presentations of Jesus and his story that I've ever seen. And I'm usually pretty critical. It seems like when religious folk get together and try to produce the arts and things, it, it doesn't always go as you'd like to see it go. But this was really well done and so I invite you to make this journey with us. Um, you can, you'll have opportunity online. If you go online, there's the chosen uh, portion of our website. Uh, you can sign up to be in a watch party group or small group if you'd like to do this with others. Um, if you would like to download the app, either Google or, or Apple app, you can just download those apps and you can watch the chosen on your iPhone at home. Throw it up on your TV, watch it at home. Um, there are study guides on our website. You can download those. All eight um, Sundays, the next eight Sundays are dedicated. One episode each for, uh, for each Sunday. So today, episode one is our, is our theme and topic and focus. 
And so you can download study guides for that. You can also do a 40-day devotional. So you can be on a 40-day um, intensive focus on looking at the life of Jesus in fresh, through fresh and new eyes. And so I'm excited about this. Um, what I'll do is take a pass each, each week. And if you don't watch any of the videos, if you don't do the study guides, you don't do the watch parties, anything like that, that's fine. You can come to church each week or tune in online. And I'll be preaching a message and sharing and teaching on a, a passage that's related to the episode. Not that you have to watch it, but if you do, it'll amplify what we're talking about here on a Sunday morning. So um, the goal today is to kind of launch this thing and get it off the ground. Uh, and then I want to talk to you about um, Luke chapter, out of cha Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, um, because a lot of people feel that Luke um, is saving, he's letting Mary Magdalene save face. And so he, he talks about an anonymous woman in Luke chapter 7. And the first woman he talks about in Luke chapter 8 is Mary Magdalene. So it's his way of letting her save face so he can tell her story, but he doesn't name her in the story in Luke 7 because he's letting her save face because there's some embarrassing things, potentially embarrassing things in her story um, that would maybe uh, would not want to be identified with. But she, uh, she's very prominent in the story of Jesus and you're going to meet some really interesting um, characters in the story of Jesus. There's Matthew and Andrew and Peter and Nicodemus. You're going to meet, like I said today, Mary Magdalene. And so these are prominent characters in the story. And what we have to keep in mind in, when we work through these episodes is that the gospel is not so much something that you assent to. It's not so much an argument that you assent to, though the gospel makes arguments for truth and there's a lot of good arguments for the gospel. The gospel is not something you primarily assent to. It is a person you have confidence in. That's the gospel. Not, not an argument to assent to, it is, uh, though it, it, it contains arguments, uh, it is a person you have confidence in. And that's exactly what Mary does. You know, we live in a time where there seems to be very little love for the Savior. Very little love at times for the Savior. And uh, everyone seems to be making the ultimate sacrifices on behalf of a new identity they're constructing or a way that they, the way they think their life ought to go. And so that gets the primary, that gets our energy and our finances and our priorities and our focus. And so what we see is a little, not as much love for Jesus and a lot of love for ourselves. Well, Mary kind of bucks that trend. I remember uh, several years ago, I read a book and Donald Miller is the author of the book. And he talked about a guy named Alan who went around the country interviewing ministry leaders. And Alan got to Dr. Bill Bright, who was former leader of Youth for Christ. And of course, I think it turned into Campus Crusade for Christ. And then eventually, I think it's known as Crew now, a very powerful ministry. Dr. Bright has since gone on to heaven. But during this time, a final question Alan asked Dr. Bright, he said, hey, um, what, Jesus, what has Jesus meant to you, Dr. Bright, all these years? You've walked with him, you've served him, you started parachurch ministries. 
um, you're discipling young collegiate um, students on campuses. You know, you're really doing an incredible thing. What has Jesus meant to you over the years? And he said, Dr. Bright, just pause for a second. He starts to shake and he starts to cry in his big chair behind his big desk. And Donald Miller said when, when Alan told him that story, he said, I wonder what it was like to love Jesus that way. Miller said he was outside a short time after that. He was outside a theater in Portland. It kind of rings true having just visited there. And he saw a guy playing the saxophone and he said he stood there for 15 minutes. And this guy plays the saxophone. He never opens his eyes. And Donna Miller said, you know, before I saw that guy play the saxophone for 15 minutes without opening his eyes, he said, I never liked jazz music. But after 15 minutes of watching him, I did. Because sometimes you got to watch somebody love something before you can love it too. And sometimes we have to watch somebody love Jesus before we can love him too. To the degree that he needs to be loved and should be loved. And that's what we're going to do today. When we look in, in Luke 7, it's incredible this this powerful message of love in fact there's like two aromas that kind of float around and waft in the air of Luke 7 and and the closer you get to Simon which uh, Jesus calls him Simon in Luke 7 we'll see it in a second and uh, he names him in Luke 7 uh, the closer you get to Simon the more you smell something kind of smelly in the passage just kind of wafts through the air. But when you move toward the anonymous woman, or we, we, we think it's Mary Magdalene in Luke 7, when you move toward her, you get this pleasant aroma. And these two smells just kind of waft back and forth in the passage. And I think you'll see in just a second why. You know, uh, in the first episode of The Chosen, and maybe you've already watched it, and that's awesome. And maybe you're going to watch it after this message, maybe sometime during the week. That would be awesome as well. Um, but Mary Magdalene, I think you'll be interested to know that she actually is mentioned by name in all four Gospels. She witnessed the crucifixion. She witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And so she became a star witness in the, the story of Christ. In episode one, you'll notice that Mary is depicted in a series of flashbacks to her childhood, and she's a fearful child. She's worried about her father's health in episode one, and this is kind of implied. Uh, she has headaches, and this keeps her from sleeping sometimes. And her father pulls little Mary Magdalene, little Mary close to him, and says, Mary, what do we do when we're scared? Well, we say the words from, from where, little Mary? And Mary says, Isaiah. And, and he says, Mary, I want to hear you say those words. This is all in a series of flashbacks in episode one. Maybe you've seen this and wondered what was happening. What are those words that we say when we're afraid, Mary? Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And she quotes that. Since she was a little girl, her daddy had her quoting those verses. Out of Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. 
Now, fast forward 28 years. Mary Magdalene no longer goes by her birth name. She, she's known as Lilith in episode one. She stays at Rivka's Inn in the red quarter of Capernaum and no longer, she's, she's no longer little Mary from the desert camp of Magdala. She is a demon-possessed woman who often is heard with a shriek when the spells overcome her. Um, she wails in a raspy and low voice, kind of like, sounds like a man at times. Other times it's multiple voices when she's speaking. There's moans and there's groans and there's scratches and there's claws. And, and the episode one does a great job of implying all these things. And not even one of the top religious Pharisees could do anything for Mary Magdalene. Not even Nicodemus could, could do anything for her. She's at a desperate place. She's going to end her life. She ends up stepping away from the rocky inlet that she's going to step off of into, near the Sea of Galilee to the ragged rocks below. She since regrets it. She finds herself in a tavern with a new resolve to finally go and follow through with ending her life like she had originally planned. But this man calls out to her. And instead of Lilith, he calls her Mary. And she stops dead in her tracks and her back is to him. And she's unable to move because she's thinking, how could he know me by that name? How could he know me? Because not a soul in Capernaum knows her real name. He calls her Mary of Magdala. And she's thinking, who are you and how do you know my name? And then he quotes from her childhood, a passage of Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. And he says to her, don't fear for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And she feels a spell coming on. And she's thinking, well, how in the world could he know that? How does he know my name? How does he, how does he go all the way back in my childhood and quote a passage like that? That only I know that that happened. And she realizes that when Jesus said those words to her, he was making a claim. And I'll come back to that at the end of the message. But he let her know she was cherished. She was forgiven. She's delivered. She's redeemed. And what he does with Mary on this occasion, he does it with others on other occasions in the Gospels. There is not a life here this morning that he cannot do that with. In fact, uh, if you go to slide number six for me, she was so impacted by this experience. The text tells us in Luke 8, Jesus traveled from town to town and the 12 were with him. And some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. And so when Mary is mentioned, she's mentioned 14 times in the gospels. And when there are two or more women that are mentioned in the group with her, eight out of nine times she's mentioned first. So she's a star witness, a star leader. She loves Jesus greatly. And sometimes you have to, you have to see somebody love Jesus before you can love him too. You're gonna see her you're going to see that love flow out of her in just a second. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the ma manager of Herod's household, Susanna, the, and many others. If we go to slide number seven, it's Mark 16 and 9 in this passage. 
clear to the end of the story, near the end of the story, where Jesus rose up early in the first day of the week, resurrected. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She was so completely possessed and impacted by the demonic and you couple that with peasant prostitution you're going to have depression anxiety unhappiness loneliness self-loathing shame fear and hosts of other miseries seven demons is the to be in total control of the demonic and episode one does a nice job of depicting this and so when you meet someone who delivers you from all of this, your feelings for that person are going to burst over in a Niagara of emotion. This person that knows my name, this person that quotes a verse from my childhood, this person that claims to be the one that made me and that protects me and that calls me by name and that wants to be involved in my life. And that's what happened that changed her. If we go to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 on the screen, uh, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a lot of things were supposed to happen when you, can't, when you would come to a, a person's house like this. You would be greeted with a kiss, a Middle Eastern kiss. You would be uh, your head would be anointed with oil. Um, your sandals would be removed. Your feet would be washed. You would be refreshed. None of that happened when the Pharisees had Jesus over. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, when a woman who had sin lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. If you would go to slide 14 and 15 for me. Slide 14 first, um, trying to give you a picture of how this open courtyard stuff happened. When you had someone in for dinner, um, you had your home and you have an open courtyard. You'd set your, your little triclinium up, which is like a three-sided view, okay? And you'd have people reclining at the table. They would recline. He doesn't say he sat at the table, he reclined. So he propped himself up on his left elbow. Go to the next slide for me. So if you can picture this as the arrangement in the Pharisee's courtyard at his home, and so they would allow people from the neighborhood, if they wanted to listen in to the conversations, if they wanted to come up to the gate near where the, 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 the event was happening, they could kind of come into that courtyard area and gather around and listen to the conversation, listen to the things that were discussed. And so that's what's happening here. If we go back to the previous slide. So you can see, uh, Go back to the, the, the uh, open courtyard, I think slide 15 for me. You can see that Mary and others um, were able to come through and can kind of gather around in a courtyard area of what was happening here. And so, uh, so she sees, she has a reputation, a sinful life. That's a modest way of saying that she earned her living on the streets and all the things that would be implied through that. And Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. And she, verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. It's kind of interesting because the word for wet his feet with her tears, it's used like four other places in the Gospels. 
and they all reference rain showers. And so she's just weeping profusely on his feet. And his, of course, Simon never washed his feet. It's like, you know, I want you to come to my house for dinner. I'm going to investigate and interrogate you. I'm going to throw in a few social snubs just so you know you're not that special in my eyes. I'm just kind of having you in, going to kick the tires a little bit about who you are and all the things you, you, that people say you're about. And that's Simon's stance, and it kind of gets smelly as we work through this. But then you've got Mary, and she sees it. She sees the social snubs. Evidently, there's been an encounter like we see in The Chosen, episode one. She's encountered Jesus. She's convinced of what this, who this man is and what he stands for. And so she makes her way to this to this dinner and she's overflowing with gratitude and all the impure stuff that's built up and accumulated in her life starts to flow out of her and it's like a river of tears. She couldn't stop crying. She's standing behind him at his feet. Her tears are dropping on his feet and she realizes she's making a mess and so she drops down. She untresses her hair and she wipes off his feet with her hair and here she is kissing an adult man's feet in public in first century Israel wiping them off with her hair at a party of a religious man she was not invited to that's bold and sometimes we have to see somebody love Jesus before we can love him too and does, she doesn't stop there and she pours perfume on them. I'm going to say more about that in just a second. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. It's kind of like Luke lets us in on his thoughts before anything's ever spoken. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. This constant contact, there's no way... This man is who he says he is to allow this kind of thing to happen. What kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. And so he's thinking, you know, I don't care how many miracles and healings this guy Jesus has done. A Messiah would never allow this. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. Never questions vocalized. But he answers him. He knows what he's thinking. He knows all the internal conversations of your life. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your childhood. He knows your name. He knows, he knows the experiences that you've had. He literally can do that with any and every human being. Like he does here with Mary. Simon, I have something to tell you. And when Jesus says that, he's going to drop a theological grenade right in your lap. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. Verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And a denarii was basically a day's wage. So you have basically one guy owed two months of labor, another guy owed two years of labor. Both are debtors. And neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Does that sound like a grudging admission to you? It's kind of smelly, isn't it? Well, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. 
And then he turned toward the woman and he, he shifts from his left side and the elbow and he sits up now from the reclining position at the meal and he looks straight. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? So he's looking right at her. Do you really see this woman? Do you understand what has happened in her life? I came into your house, Simon, verse 44 on the screen. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Verse 46, you did not put oil, a cheaper substance on my head, but she has Pour perfume, a pricey substance, on my feet. You know, I don't think Jesus is being hypersensitive to social insults. I think he would have let it go. Just passed right over it, went on with the dinner. But he sees something that needs to be set up in contrast between Simon, smelly Simon, smelly pride, and the aroma and the life of Mary Magdalene. The aroma of forgiveness and grace. Jesus sets this up. And therefore I tell you, verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, and for the first time, Jesus actually speaks to the woman and he speaks these words to you and to me. If we'll but receive them, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. And that's the, the point that Luke is making. This guy, Jesus, knows stuff. He knows your name. He knows your childhood. He knows, he knows, uh, and he sees that sin is ultimately not just against others. It is against him. And he understands this. And he's authorized to forgive us. The great sin bearer, and this becomes uh, clear later in Luke's gospel. And so Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It was her faith, her confidence in a person more than an assent to an argument being made by the Savior. It's her confidence in a person that he says it and I believe it. And he has the authority to say it. And he knows me. You know, when Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And we move towards Simon in the text. It's like he's treating Jesus with a polite formality. He's totally courteous. You know, yeah, you can come to my house for dinner, but I'm going to give you a few social snubs and I'm going to kind of put you in your place, even though I'm gesturing hospitality. And can you imagine what Simon's reaction is when Jesus says, Simon, why don't you kiss me? Why didn't you kiss me? Why didn't you hug me? Why didn't you weep over me when I came in? Can you imagine Simon saying, you know, you're kidding, right? Right? What do you want of me? I, you know, I brought you into my home. We're having a nice little chat. It's a, mid, it's a Middle Eastern evening. We've got people enjoying themselves. You don't really expect me to embrace you and weep and fall down at your feet and receive you with this kind of passion, this kind of drama that this lady has demonstrated here in front of everybody. You see what Simon is going on with Simon, his whole self's not in it. 
He's not really letting Jesus into the center. He's going to have a discussion with Jesus. He's going to, he's going to ask a few questions of Jesus. He's going to check Jesus out. He's going to interview Jesus. Yeah, okay, you do miracles. Okay, that's impressive. I've heard some of your teaching. Okay, that's impressive. Sounds remarkable. I'm trying to figure you out and whether or not you would be advantageous for, you to, for me to have you in my life. You see, Simon's in control. Jesus is the applicant. Fill out these applications in triplicate, please. And then maybe, maybe I'll give you an audience. Maybe if you're lucky and you dot your I's and you cross your T's just right, I might have you back. And Jesus sees it. And I just go on record and say that Jesus is not someone you can interview for the job of Lord and Savior of your life. You don't interview him, okay? Life will never work. I've tried it. It will never work when Jesus is relegated to that level that maybe I'll have him and maybe I won't. And with all the pleasant aroma in the passage, there's something in it that gets kind of smelly when you get around Simon. It just, it just is all around him. But I want to encourage you this morning on this first episode one, this first Sunday of the Chosen series. I want to encourage you to move toward Mary Magdalene. You know, the jar is kind of misleading when it talks about the jar. And I think it's verse 38. If you go back to verse 38 for me on the slides, she, uh, she stood behind uh, Actually, verse 37, a, wom a woman was there, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And I think a lot of people think it was a mason fruit jar, you know, really big. And it, it, it's huge, and it has just, just lots and lots of, of perfume, expensive perfume in there. But it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It's more, think, think more like a necklace size a bottle of a vial or a flask in a jar and it was a little globular or it had a bulb and it had a very long skinny neck and it was attached with a leather strap around the neck and and women would typically wear these especially in the in the vocation occupation that Mary Magdalene had prior to meeting Christ and so the, the opening at the top of this thing was very narrow there's no way you could just pour it out without breaking the flask so there's, it, it, when they made the alabaster jar, they made it with this expensive perfume inside the bulb. And so that you can never really spill it or pour it out. And so it was probably the most expensive thing that she owned. But it was one of the most important tools of her trade. It was very expensive and it was a, an incredible accessory in a pre shower world a pre-bath world right fragrance and beauty and that was all part of it part of the persona of that life and if you ever wanted to pour it out you had to take that off your neck and shatter it and then you could pour it out do you see what mary's doing and do you see why i want you to move toward her in this series for a woman to take the tool of her trade off and pour it at the feet of Jesus. It, she was saying, I have a better use now for this perfume. So she was changing 
the direction her, of her life in that little narrative detail. She's saying, if you are who you say you are, that changes everything for me. I come to you without conditions. I come to you, I give you everything I am. I give you everything I have and I refuse to see anything more valuable in my life than you. And when you see it that way, your job, your behavior, your ethics, the way you use your money, your relationships, your sexuality, how you express and identify with that, your thought life, your intellectual life, everything, it's everything, it's poured out at his feet. Lord, she's saying, I have always trusted in my beauty. I've always trusted in my desirability. But she says, no longer will this be the fundamental thing I trust in my life. No longer. Because though I trusted in it, it mastered me, it controlled me, and now you are the master. And this morning I hasten to say, everybody has this little flask around your neck, what's yours? And are you willing to shatter that thing and pour it out at his feet? You're going to pour out of your life, that which is very important to you, you're going to pour that at somebody's feet. There's something in someone that you're going to live for. And the question this morning is who gets your heart? Who gets the perfume of your life? Who do you live for utterly and entirely? You see, Mary Magdalene was a throwaway person in the first century world and love came to town that knew her name, that formed her and knew her name, that forgave her, that set her free, right? Love came to town and we see that Mary was on the outside of every single category of inside and outside the world had at that time. She was a woman, not a man. She was poor, not middle class. She was deranged at one time, not sane. She was immoral, not moral. She was on the outside of everything and yet love comes flooding in. And she was so overwhelmed by that act of love and grace and forgiveness of being set free that she emotes in a Niagara of emotion. She could not help it. She plunges into this, this dinner scene and she stands behind the Savior and she weeps at his feet and she breaks the flask. Why are we not breaking our flask? Why are we not letting our hair down? Why are we not bowing and, and worshiping at his feet? Because you know why? Because we're just checking him out. Maybe I will and maybe I won't if Jesus behaves right. Uh-uh. That's not Mary. That's Simon. And that gets smelly. You see this morning what he wants. For you to take that flask off your neck and everybody's got one. Shatter it. And pour it at his feet. In adoration. And when you do that, you realize that a statement is being made about the gospel in this story. And the gospel is that God's salvation does not come to the, on the basis of merit. 
It doesn't come on the basis of pedigree. We hear a lot about race and class and gender and pecking order. And the gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. Because you know what? Some of us are 50 denarii and some of us are 500. But we're debtors. The gospel is not that you give God a perfect record, but the gospel is that he gives you a perfect record in Christ. The gospel is not that it is not your past, which is the determining factor of your relationship with the Father, but it's Christ's past and his record that brings you into fellowship with God. Okay? When we see what Jesus is saying here, what Luke is trying to get across to us here, It's a theological grenade, right? Pull the pin, drop it in your lap. Boom! That's the gospel. What's hanging around your neck today? What needs to be broken open and poured at his feet? If you'll do it, you'll go places with Jesus you've never been. Because you're chosen. You're chosen. To be his. What does a burning love for Jesus look like? Well, pretty obvious. She wanted to be close to Jesus. She wanted to be near him. She wasn't content to remain at a distance. She had to be close. The boldness of her confession... I don't really think she cared who saw her. She was way past that. She loved the Lord. She had a deep humility. She wouldn't stand in front of Jesus. She stood behind him. And she did the most menial task. And sometimes that's what Jesus asks us to do. Sometimes that's how we show love. We stand behind him. He's in front, right? Jesus leads this thing. He's the center of my life. I'm not out in front here. Jesus is in front of me. And if he asks me to wash feet, I'll wash feet. Because it's an expression of my love for the Savior. What does it mean? What does a burning love for Jesus look like? I think Mary Magdalene, anonymous here, revealed in the next chapter, I think she shows you how to love a Savior. And sometimes, before you can love Jesus, you have to watch somebody love him too. Watch Mary in episode one. She loves the Savior. You know, slide number um, 12, Rebecca Bender tells her Mary Magdalene story in her book, In Pursuit of Love. I think that's what Mary was in pursuit of, wasn't she? Rebecca Bender says that it took her years to process her trauma and inner healing that she had to go through. And you'll understand why in just a second. I can only imagine. Um, She graduated from high school at at age 17. She had an athletic scholarship to Oregon State. She got pregnant. Her boyfriend became a a convicted felon. She said, no one was there to teach me boundaries in the early years of my life. And so I sought love 
and attention by saying yes to as many things as she could. She said, my dad's family loved Jesus. I had a grandma who was a prayer warrior and that impacted me at an early age. My mom's family had nothing to do with Jesus. And uh, money was tight and with a baby, she said, I rarely got called for second dates. She was lonely. She met Brian and Brian said he was a record producer, a music manager. He flattered Rebecca Bender. He took her places in his luxury SUV. He went to child-friendly places for pizza with her daughter. That definitely won her heart and scored points, right? He took her on the business trip to Vegas. They stayed at Bally's and they dined in expensive restaurants and nightclubs. And Brian took business calls all the time while he briefly mentioned that he occasionally managed girls on the side to supplement income until things with the record label could pick up. He was kind of vague about it, and she was mesmerized by Vegas, thinking that maybe Brian was her ticket out of Eugene, Oregon. She told her parents about it, and they're like, Rebecca, this is off. This is way off. Do you think she listened at 19 with dollar signs in her eyes and Vegas on her mind? Rebecca, this is off. This guy's not right. Wouldn't listen. 19 dollar signs she believed brian when he said they could raise a family together so brian moved rebecca to vegas for more spending sprees and fine dinners he takes her out one night but instead of heading toward the vegas strip he turned down a dead-end street he parked along the curb beside a deserted mall and he proceeds to tell rebecca how much money he had to spend to move her and her daughter to vegas he made her out to be this huge financial burden. He says, and you're going to go over there and sign up to be an escort in this escort service. But Brian, escort sounds like prostitution, and I don't, bam! His hand connects to her cheek, and it stunned her. Now he's got her, far from home in his debt at an address she doesn't even have memorized yet somewhere her daughter is there at this address she doesn't even know how to tell people how to get there she's afraid for her safety she's ready to do whatever it takes to stay in the glitz of vegas she says i was numb when we went to that first call and brian turned to her and said welcome to the game They give all the girls nicknames, and hers was Pocahontas. She had Choctaw heritage, and they kept promising her a normal life, that it all would eventually pass, and, and, and Poca, it's going to be okay, and you'll have more freedom. And, and, and she said, I never dreamed of being a prostitute in Vegas. This wasn't the life I was promised when my boyfriend told me he loved me and wanted me and my baby to move with him to Vegas. Boyfriend was a con artist and brainwash artist. She liked the money and the attention and it wasn't uncommon for a pimp to be called a husband and all the girls that worked for him were wife-in-laws or sisters. And so brainwashed she was and all those girls are. They all dream of marrying their pimp. And she says, our God-given desire for intimacy and belonging ran so deep that we willingly settled for and even grew to love the counterfeit family that they had created. 
and you weren't allowed to talk about your real family. She did all kinds of things to convince herself that the men she worked for loved her and would eventually keep their promises. She got a lot of severe beatings. And she said it was in those times that I reflected back on the early days of my life when my one parent's family who knew Jesus kind of taught her to pray and to look to the Lord. And she remembers praying in those times, especially after the severe beatings. Of course, shame crept into the depths of her heart. She couldn't find love and approval, so she starts accepting drugs from customers, and now she's addicted. There's more shame. There's deeper addictions. There's a suicide plan in the making. The midnight blue Mercedes SLS 500 could not soften the pain of reality and the deep-seated hatred with which she lived her life. She said, I got to a place where my whole body just shook like that. And she wanted to go home and she sobbed as she laid down line after line of cocaine. Her nose gushed with blood, her visions fogged. And Jesus kept showing up in these weird scenes, popping up in the home and where she was located. But she could never see his face. She always saw his back. And that bothered her. She ended up going to rehab in a highly regimented recovery plan. And they had a good spiritual core. She read the Bible through like three times in a year. And she said it was there that she finally learned what happened to her. Human trafficking. She was delivered from drug addiction, but the trauma bond in Vegas lured her back for a season. Money, money became her new drug and the need to be loved consumer consumed her. And then this was followed by depression Finally, the whole thing got busted for tax evasion. One failed relationship after another. And eventually she says, I get to the place where I have to find healing for my PTSD, my nightmares, all the triggers, the emotional outburst. And so she eventually marries a Christian man. She felt led to write a book and tell her story. And this turned into a ministry and a workbook for trafficked survivors called Roadmap to Redemption. Slide number 13 is that... Uh, is that tool that's used to help so many people come out of human trafficking. Well, she was invited to speak at a Shared Hope International in D.C. It's one of the largest anti-trafficking organizations in the world. And she was touring the congressional floor in the Capitol building and the walls of the rooms were lined with murals with a message. And the, the, the guide was explaining the message related to each mural. And then the tour guide directed everyone's attention to a painting that rested on an easel there in the hallway, and it was of Pocahontas, the Native American Pocahontas, which was her nickname in Vegas. And in the painting, she wore, Pocahontas wore a glistening white dress that cascaded down the altar steps of a church, and in this painting, she's at the top of the stairs. She knelt in front of a priest, his hand dipped into a baptismal font, preparing to sprinkle holy water over her. And then the guide lecture reverberates off of the walls these words as he was explaining the painting that was especially presented there in the rotunda that day. That the Pocahontas was baptized and she was given the Christian name Rebecca. And when Rebecca Bender, the former Vegas prostitute known as Pocahontas, heard that, 
She said, the Spirit of God came on me with such force that I could barely stand. The people around me never understood my tears. They didn't know my old name was Pocahontas. They didn't know that my real name was Rebecca. They didn't know that for years I'd been beaten by my trafficker and branded by my trafficker. They didn't know how he'd renamed me and stripped me of all my identity, how he had owned me. And she had her Mary Magdalene moment. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, you will not sweep, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. When Jesus looks at Mary Magdalene outside the tavern and he says these words to this lady, Lilith, whom she was known as Lilith at the time, according to episode one. He's claiming to be the one who created her. Watch it in the episode. Revisit it if you've already watched it. He's claiming to be the one who created her. The Lord says, he who created you, he who formed you, you're looking at him. He's claiming to be the one who redeemed her. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have paid the price so you can be free. He's claiming to be the one who knows her. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. He's claiming to be the one who protects her. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. The question I have for you this morning is, do you belong to a someone like this? Do you long to know your creator, to experience his redemption, to have him show you in your life? in an unmistakable way that you are his. It might be in rotunda rooms in Capitol buildings with a painting in front of you and a guide. It might be outside of a tavern. It might be in a junkyard. It might be on the street. It might be at home. But there's a moment, there's a time when Jesus wants to step into your life and tell you who you really are. And he says to Simon in our text, Simon, I have something to tell you. Theological grenade. Sometimes Jesus is going to say to you, I have something to tell you. And he might have already said it in this message. You see, Jesus is either going to be your guest or he's going to be your everything. You can be detached, unaffected. You can have impersonal religion. You know, you can do that. Sometimes people's like, well, you know, I don't emote like that. I, I, don't, I don't show my love like that. And maybe we never see this stuff, this kind of stuff happen, like happened in Mary Magdalene's life because we think of sin as merely a failure to obey some of the rules instead of seeing underneath it all that we are living a life of independence from God, that, that we, are, we are filled with the aroma of spiritual pride and we don't need Jesus. 
we, God can love me and know me and I can know God, but I don't need Jesus to know God. And so the question I got is that what did it cost God to have that personal relationship with you? How do you have that personal relationship with God outside of Jesus? Where's the agony? Where's the thorns? Where are the nails? Where's the blood? And you say, well, I don't believe it was necessary for God to go through all of that in order to have a relationship with me. I see. And that's the reason why you're not weeping. That's why. The reason you're not letting down your hair, the reason you're not weeping on his feet, the reason you're not breaking flask and pouring them out at his feet, the reason is that religion is far more like Simon's than like hers. And the reason why, he's not a, why he is not a personal reality in your life is you don't see the cost. What it cost. For in the life of Jesus, God broke a jar and he pours out love. And until you see that, you're going to Simon your way through life and it's going to be smelly. But when you see what he has done in the life of Jesus and what it cost him to do it, tears won't be a problem. It'll, it'll wake you up. It'll confront you with your pride. And you'll come to him. And you'll cherish him. What's hanging around your neck today? Why don't you break it? And pour it at his feet. For you are chosen. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much this day for your great grace. Thank you so much for the life of Jesus and thank you so much for the beauty of who he is and what he's accomplished. And God, yeah, we've had pride and we, we, uh, we have a, a smelly aroma around our lives sometimes. And would you forgive us? Help us to see the beauty of your grace and your love and your mercy. And, um, and I just ask and pray whatever's hanging around our neck this morning. It's, maybe it's, it's a really heavy burden. And it would be such a relief just to take that thing off and pour it at your feet today. I ask and pray that whoever's there and whatever that is, that you would help him shatter that flask and just pour it all to your feet and go in a new direction. That's what we want today. For we realize in Jesus, we have been chosen. Praise God. We have been chosen. And maybe today, will you whisper a name? Will you touch a life? Would you heal a heart? Um, would you send everyone here out in your peace and your forgiveness? If only they are but willing. <clears throat> we ask that you would do it in your name. Amen. The Chosen, <clears throat> episode one, seeing Jesus if you've never seen him, will you stand with me? Go in his grace and peace today. If you have a chance, get you some IPEAM and enjoy it. Enjoy it.
in memory of uh, Eliza Lee in this message today. Have a great week.